So one day, Jesus was traveling along the road to a town called Jericho, and there was a great crowd surrounding him, walking with him. And on the side of the road, there was a man. His name was Bartimaeus. He was a blind beggar. So, of course, he couldn't see the commotion, but he could hear it. Something uh, was going on. A crowd was, was passing by, and so he inquires as to what the, the issue is. What's all the commotion? And somebody says, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Well, Bartimaeus jumps to his feet and very loudly begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, the crowd is mortified by this shameful display, so they're trying to get rid of Bartimaeus. They're trying to shoo him away and keep him quiet, but he becomes all the more insistent. He gets louder. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus calls for this man to be brought to him. Jesus says to Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus says to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, Bartimaeus' sight returns to him. He begins to worship God and follow Jesus, and the whole crowd is astonished. They can't believe what they've witnessed, and they join Bartimaeus in worship. So that's an account from Luke chapter 18. It's one of the great miracle stories of the Scripture where we really get to, uh, such an insight into like a front-row view of Jesus' power and also his mercy. But there's a peculiar detail in that story. I'm sure you caught it. What Bartimaeus calls Jesus twice. Bartimaeus refers to Jesus as the son of David, which may seem strange or even wrong for us to read it because we might say, well, wait a minute, Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph, right? Not the son of David. But what's peculiar about this, this account is Bartimaeus, who was blind, actually saw Jesus already for who Jesus really was. Bartimaeus saw Jesus in a way that not everybody else did at this time. Jesus is the son of David. And today, my hope is that we'll see it, that we'll see not only this title and what it means, but why it's so significant to us. Y'all, we're taking this summer... Uh, next week will be our conclusion, but we're taking the summer to give kind of a survey of the Bible to show that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not somehow telling us two different stories, but one great big and unified story. And that what God is doing all throughout the Scripture and all throughout history has its ultimate focus and fulfillment in one person. That is the person of Jesus Christ. And it's pretty much impossible for us to have this conversation about how the Old and New Testament uh, combines and correlates. It's hard to do it without talking about David, because David is, by God's design, such a significant figure, King David. Now, I don't think it's a stretch for us to say that David is perhaps the greatest hero in all the Bible, maybe even in all of literature. Everybody, Christian, non-Christian, uh, everybody seems to know the story of David and Goliath, right? And it's become, you know, a kind of a metaphor for sports or for business or anything that we might apply to it in life. The underdog who is, who is scrawny but courageous and conquers the fearsome giant, right? David and Goliath. What we might forget, though, in the course of that story is God actually um, 
chooses and anoints David to be king of Israel before he ever battled Goliath. It wasn't that that David shows up on the scene and proves himself and gets God's attention, and God says, man, I could use that guy. No, before it ever happened. So if you you want to go back later and read 1 Samuel 16, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem, to the house of a man named Jesse, to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the future king, to replace the first king, Saul. Now, David was the youngest son of Jesse, so young and obscure, out pasturing the flock, that Jesse didn't even think to bring David in to be evaluated. He wasn't even on the list of potential kings in the household. But God insisted that David was the one, and the Lord then sent his spirit mightily upon him. Then, in 1 Samuel 17, then we see Israel at war with the Philistines, and this challenge that the great conqueror Goliath puts forth, that the entire balance of the war is to be decided not by two uh, armies fighting, but by two representatives, one for each army. Goliath says he will fight any man from Israel that they dare to put forth, and the winner of that duel will claim victory for their entire nation. So if Goliath wins, all of Israel loses and then becomes captives and slaves to the Philistines. That's the issue here. That's what had all of Israel cowering in fear. Who could possibly stand up against this man? Now, David wasn't even a part of Israel's army. And so if you read that portion of the story, David comes to the battle at his father's command to deliver food and check in on how his older brothers are doing. There in Saul's army, David shows up with a plate of cheese. He wasn't there to fight. But when David shows up, and begins to hear Goliath's taunts, he becomes indignant. Wait, why is everybody cowering in fear, David asks. Who does this man think he is to defy the armies of the living God? And so David volunteers to stand for God's people and fight Goliath on their behalf. And he delivers one of the baddest battle cries of all time, all right? Better than Lord of the Rings or Gladiator or anything you want to stack up against it. Look at, this is 1 Samuel 17. Goliath has taunted David, has called him a dog. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. It's amazing. You know what's amazing about all that? As, as rough and awesome as that little speech was, David never once boasted of his own strength and skill. You notice that? That's what Goliath did. Goliath, who, who was bordering on, what, 10 feet tall, able to, you know, he, he had a, a, you know, like an 80-pound sword or something crazy. Like, this, this is an unbelievably formidable enemy in front of David, and David says nothing at all about himself. He boasts only in the Lord. Goliath could have been 100 feet tall, and it wouldn't have mattered. 
because the Lord, the one true God, would certainly deliver his people. And he does. He saves them through the anointed man God made to fight on their behalf. Now, I want you to hold on to this. We're going to come back around to this, this David and Goliath story later. But when David does slay Goliath with the slingshot and the sword, now all the people are suddenly aware that there is a special anointing on this man, this otherwise unknown little kid in their eyes. God is with him. And there begins to be a shift among the people. Clearly, God's favor is on David and not on Saul. And even though it, was, it took a long time with great tribulation, you can read all about it. Saul made it as hard as he could on David. But eventually, David is ordained as king. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, to, the message today, the point of this message is not to recount all of David's, the events in his life. We, we could do that all morning long. Um, his, his great triumphs and his great sins. There were many. But the point of this is that we would see the bigger picture that God has in mind in anointing David as king. Not just for David's sake, but for all of Israel and even for us right here where we sit, believe it or not. See, what we, what we see in the scripture is that David is, by God's own admission, David is a man after God's own heart who was a humble shepherd, not just a shepherd before he was king, but he always had that heart about him. And because he was such a humble shepherd and such a faithful man, by God's grace, he becomes a savior to Israel, and then he becomes her king. And y'all, what's amazing about David, even from the beginning, when David is anointed as king, his own people refer to him as the shepherd of Israel. He did not rule with force, a cruel heart, and an iron fist. He did not subjugate his people. He loved them. And he sought righteousness and peace for Israel. David was great. And yet as great as he was, God was always pointing beyond him, ahead of him, to someone greater than him. And so listen to this. When I asked you a minute ago to turn to 2 Samuel 7, these are the words that God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan very shortly after he became king. So this, was, this is not at the end of David's life. This is at the beginning of his reign. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, God says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. This is Solomon, David's son, who will do this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity... I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that is a promise. It's a temporary promise in some sense, right, as to what's going to happen in the immediate future, but it's much bigger than that. The Lord makes a promise to David and to his son Solomon, the promise concerning David's, uh, the, the temple, right, that will be built after David is gone. But it's also a bigger promise about David's house and kingdom and throne. God says he's going to establish David's throne forever and that his loving kindness will never depart from the one who sits on the throne. And so we, we see this often, especially in the Old Testament, we see 
when God makes a promise, often there is an immediate fulfillment. David's son Solomon will build the temple. But there's also a future and far greater fulfillment in view. David, God says, will always have a descendant, a son, who sits on his throne. Always. All right, now fast forward with me about a thousand years. Okay, we can do that when it's in the past, right? We can move timelines. A thousand years after this promise was made, God makes another promise. It's a promise that comes into an obscure place to an obscure person. Her name was Mary, and she lived in Nazareth. The angel Gabriel comes to her, Luke chapter 1, and gives her this good news. Behold, he says to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. God's promise of an everlasting throne for David was far greater than what David could have possibly seen or imagined in the moment. See, it was, it was not a promise of mere human succession that always somebody from the line of David uh, will be sitting on an earthly throne, but the Lord will establish David's throne forever, he says, and we find out now how. By granting to the world a forever king. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, as well as the Son of David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the clear fulfillment of God's promise to David that his loving kindness will never depart the throne and the one who sits on it. And that throne will be established forever. And so, y'all, the, the extent in terms of, of the length of time we're talking about here Because King Jesus is the Son of God, he is divine, therefore we know his kingdom will have no end. It's not human succession that comes and goes with the lifespan of the individual. David died. Clearly, David's promises did not terminate on him, but on one who would come after him. And it's clear that that's not Solomon either. It's someone else. It's someone yet future. This kingdom will have no end because the king will be eternal. That's Jesus. So there's an extent in view here. It's forever. But there's also a nature to this kingdom. What kind of kingdom is God promising? How is it that King Jesus would be distinct from David or Solomon or any other human king? Um, There's a place in, in Jeremiah 23 where God condemns the kings, the rulers of Israel, and he likens them to, to shepherds. But not good shepherds, not the kind of shepherd that the the nation needs and that God demands. But they are shepherds, God says, who destroy and scatter the sheep. They pay no mind to the needs of the people. They only care about themselves, and therefore they have failed in what God has given them to do. And so God, in Jeremiah 23, God takes it upon himself. He says of himself that he will be the shepherd who gathers his people Israel and leads them out. Okay? So God is going to do what Israel's kings failed to do. And here's how he's going to do it. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Now that's a stunning promise. And it corresponds to the promise that, that God made to David. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, there will be a righteous branch coming from David's family tree, coming from the line of David, a son of David, who will be perfect in justice and righteousness, a true shepherd king who will bring salvation and peace to the people. And unlike every other king, remember back in the promise that, that God made to David when he spoke of Solomon, he said, when he commits iniquity, I will chastise him, I will discipline him. When he commits iniquity. There was no if. There was no question. Solomon was a sinner just like David was, just like every king was. But unlike them all, this final king, God promises, will be blameless. In fact, he will be called the Lord our righteousness. He will not just be a righteous man, but he will be God himself declaring righteousness, giving righteousness to his people. And so when the scripture points us, y'all, to Jesus as the true son of David, the promise is an eternal kingdom ruled by a truly wise and just and righteous king. Not a king that God selects from among the rest of us, the best of us. No, this is a king that God will set forth and send himself. He will be the Lord, our righteousness. And so we see the extent of the kingdom. It's forever. We see that the nature of Jesus's kingdom, that it is perfect and just and righteous and altogether pure. But y'all, there's, there's a third facet I want us to see in this. When we speak of Jesus as being the son of David, remember David was the shepherd king, the one who knew what it was to be humble, to live in obscurity, to pasture the flock, in gentleness. And he led in so many ways with that, with that frame of mind and heart. But, they, but, but Jesus, the son of David, the ultimate, the true shepherd king, is not just eternal and he's not just righteous. The scripture says of this king, Jesus, that he will be unendingly merciful and gentle, a true shepherd for the sheep. At the very outset of Jesus's ministry, he makes this crystal clear when Jesus uh, enters into Nazareth, which was his hometown, and he enters the synagogue and they hand him the scroll, which was Isaiah, Jesus opens the scroll and reads a prophecy. And it becomes immediately clear that Jesus is speaking about himself. This is the Messiah, the son of David, what he will come to accomplish, what his ministry will be marked by. And Jesus says, this is being fulfilled today. In me, And here's what he says. This is in Luke 4, by the way, quoting Isaiah 61. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year 
of the Lord. When, when the son of David appeared, just as God promised he would, he didn't come the way most expected him to come. What did people generally think the son of David was going to do? He was going to conquer the enemy, just as David did. In his case, Goliath and the Philistines, but in the Messiah's case, it's Rome who held Israel under their thumb. Surely the son of David will come and vanquish our enemies. But when the son of David did appear, he did not come in a show of conquering force. He came to usher in God's saving grace. He came, Jesus says, for the sake of the poor and the sick and the oppressed. He came for the sake of those who could never save themselves. That's the kind of shepherd king Jesus came to be. And so, y'all, is it any wonder that poor, blind Bartimaeus would so insistently and loudly shout, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knew exactly who he was talking to. Bartimaeus understood something. He saw something even in his blindness that most others did not. He saw that Jesus is the promised one. He is the son of David. He's the forever king. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is the one because he is merciful. He's the one who can even give sight to the blind. And Jesus said to Bartimaeus, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Bartimaeus had faith in Jesus, not just Jesus the good teacher, or even Jesus the prophet, or Jesus the healer. None of those things were, were true merely. Bartimaeus understood this is David's promised son. He is the anointed one who will deliver his people. He is the one come to save us. Now, y'all, as we, as we look at connections like this, I try to say this weekly. This is not just interesting trivia. It's not just helping us see the points of connection in the Bible to know that they're there, but it's understanding the reason that God gives us these points of connection, that God raises up David, but always with a view to someone who would come after him, his son who would eclipse him and fulfill God's ultimate promise to us. See, when we call... When we call Jesus the son of David, that might imply that somehow Jesus is less than David. He's his son. He's coming on down the line. Therefore, he's less than. But in fact, no, he is greater than. Jesus posed that question to the Pharisees. If the Messiah is the son of David, then why did David call him Lord? You can read about that, I think, in Luke 21. Fascinating discussion. But Jesus was making a point. That the Messiah being David's son is not less than David, but greater. He is the Lord. He's the one who created David. And he is ultimately the one who saved David when David could not save himself. Y'all, I want you to think about this. I told you we'd come back around to the David and Goliath story. When Goliath is defeated because David steps forward as the representative of all Israel... And by defeating the great enemy before him, he secures victory and salvation and freedom for all the people, right? But all throughout, even in the story itself, 
it's clear that the Lord is the one doing it. The Lord is the one doing the fighting and the delivering. David understood that before he ever cast a stone into Goliath's forehead. David's taunt, his boast was in the Lord, not in himself. And y'all, that's why when we read that story, as inspiring as the story is, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being inspired by David. It's not just a nice lesson for us. It's not just a moral lesson. It's not, to, it's, it's not something we read to say, well, you know what? If I just have enough faith and courage, then I can defeat the enemies in my life, whatever my giant is. We shouldn't read it like that. Because much more what we see in that story is the great story of the Scripture, which is God setting forth and accomplishing His greater purpose in all that He does. What He did in the David and Goliath event, God has done in a greater way for us. God says days are coming, right, Jeremiah? Days are coming when God is going to send forth a true Savior who will stand in the place of His people on their behalf, and He will battle the great enemy for us. Not a giant in our path, not any human or physical army, but the greatest enemies of all, the enemies of sin and death, the insurmountable foes which you and I have no chance against. And when He comes, He will defeat them once and for all for us. And His victory will not come by way of slingshot and sword, but by way of a cross in an empty tomb. Jesus conquers our sin by taking it upon himself. Jesus conquers death by dying on our behalf and then rising again in victory. And this is, in the truest and greatest sense, this is how the Lord delivers his people. We're not being delivered in only some temporary sense as Israel was that day. It was a great victory. It was of the Lord but it wasn't to last. Only what God does for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, is His ultimate aim, His eternal aim for you and me. We are saved entirely by His power and His mercy granted to us by His champion set forth, our true shepherd king, Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate purpose of God putting forth David in Goliath's path. The insurmountable foe has been defeated for you and me. Now, y'all, as we, as we close here, there, there's, a, there's a person in the Old Testament who really understood what I'm talking about. Maybe only in shadows, not completely, of course, but he really grasped this well, this point. It was David. David understood something about himself and about God that, that required a great deal of faith and of, and of self-consciousness, um, uh, self-understanding. David knew that he was great, great by God's grace, great by God's doing. God is the one who delivered the enemy into his hand. He understood that. But you know what David also understood? He was a great sinner. And y'all, one thing, of course, when we talk about David, and I'm not whitewashing his story here. We can talk about Bathsheba. We can talk about the census. David had, had sins greater than we can possibly fathom. But he knew it. And in his sin, he turned to God in faith and repentance, because David understood something about himself and about the Lord. He knew he was a sinner in need of saving, and he knew that it was not in him to save himself. David understood that, that, that no amount of sacrifices set forth could truly atone for his sin, that no amount of good works could make up for his bad. 
When David understood the nature of his sin, he had to look for a mercy outside of himself. And that's how we get psalms like this one. Psalm 32. These are David's words. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, David was saved by the very same grace that saves you and me. And what we see in, what David maybe saw only in shadow form, we see with crystal clarity now that Jesus Christ has come as the son of David to fulfill God's promise of a righteous and eternal king, a mighty savior who is also a merciful shepherd, who is able and willing to save those who cannot save themselves, who does not rule over us with an iron fist, demanding our best efforts to appease him, but who enters into our darkness and sin and lays down his own life as a good shepherd would for the salvation of his sheep. And so now any one of us here in Ridgeland, Mississippi, or in Ghana, or in Pakistan, anywhere where the the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news is shared, anyone may say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the king who is infinitely merciful brings us in and delivers. Everything God promised, an eternal king, a righteous king, a merciful king, we now have because God has delighted to send us his own son. The son of David is the son of God. And when we look to him, we are saved. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that we would delight in what we've read and seen. Um, That you, Father, would be so gracious and good to promise a, a, a forever king and a forever kingdom that, Lord, does not belong to those who can be righteous in themselves, a kingdom that does not belong to, to only to those who can prove that we're good enough or religious enough or that there's anything, Lord, we might provide as evidence of of our belonging here. We may look to the king himself who is altogether righteous and perfect and good and eternal and merciful. King Jesus, who um, did not enter into your world to take up an earthly throne, but who came to take on a cross to suffer for us, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that our transgressions might be covered, Lord, that you would not impute iniquity to us, Lord, that you would not hold our sins against us, but instead, Lord, you would make us righteous because our Savior is the Lord, our righteousness. And so, Father, I pray this this morning that we would delight 
to be, um, to be in your kingdom. Lord, granted uh, access. Lord, we belong to you now by no good we've done, but simply by looking to Jesus Christ and trusting him. Lord, repenting of our sin, turning from all that we were, and receiving new life in his name as a free gift by his grace. Father, thank you that, that you did not terminate your promises based on David's sin or Solomon's sin or any other human king and his failures, but that your promise exceeded them all. Your promise, Lord, was to send forth a, a true king, a divine and righteous king, that he might rule over us in love forever. I pray, Father, that we would be um, humbled uh, and, uh, and astonished that you, Father, would love us the way you have. Let us be uh, servants and citizens, sons and daughters. Oh, Lord, all that your kingdom now means for us, Lord, we are welcomed in. Lord, may we live like we've really been made new. May we live, Lord, like we belong to your kingdom and not to the kingdoms of this world. Let us live as those who have been given the light of Jesus Christ to cast out all darkness because we are saved by his grace alone. We pray all these things in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.